Okay, you got Acts 8? Well, we're returning to a a fascinating story in, in this book about Philip. He was a servant who served in the early church and helping to get some food to widows there in Acts 6. And he was preaching to the Samaritans. And then God sent an angel to him and said that he wanted him to go to Gaza and travel on a desert road. And on his way, he met a black African who was a treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. And we're told that he was also a eunuch, which made him a little bit more trustworthy in dealing with the royal court. Uh, He was returning home after visiting Jerusalem for worship. And so that tells us that he traveled at least hundreds, if not over a thousand miles each way to make that jaunt. All the details about this black eunuch from Africa makes it plain that he was viewed as an outsider to Jerusalem Jews. Now, a man in his state, even if he believed all of Judaism, he was not allowed, because of his physical state, he was not allowed to go inside the temple. So, If the book of Acts says anything to us, it's about how God is tearing down the the earthly boundaries and barriers to the gospel. Any person, no matter how they've grown up, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, whatever religion, uh, regardless of color, nationality, economic status, they can come to Christ and be forgiven of their sins. We see this all throughout the book of Acts. So let's stand as we read our passage. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied. Who can describe his generation for His life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with the scriptures. He told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the, Philip, the, the, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So the eunuch is in a chariot reading from the book of Isaiah. Philip is told to run up beside the chariot, and when he does, he hears the eunuch reading. And it's there that we pick up the story. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. 
So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah and the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to join him, uh, to, to come up and sit with him. Now, we don't know exactly how the Spirit spoke to Philip, but I assume it was an audible voice. And it, it, I think it begs the question of how we can position our own hearts to listen well to what the Lord is saying to us. Uh, I don't know about you, but I haven't always had the Spirit speaking audibly to me like it seems to imply here in this story. Now, we know the Spirit speaks through the Word, but sometimes you're wanting more. You're wanting to understand something about whether you should go left or right or whatever. How does the Lord speak to us? Well, we certainly want to position our hearts in a, in a listening, humble position before the Lord. Is there anything that we've been wrestling with God about where maybe our will is refusing to submit? I find that those kinds of things have to be settled and my ears are a lot more perked up in terms of listening for the Holy Spirit. There's no magic words. There's no physical position one has to be in. But rather, I think a, a genuine craving for learning and for growing in intimacy with Christ. Isn't it cool here that it says that Philip ran up to the eunuch? I mean, when we think of relational barriers that the church experiences with people from you know, different economic status or maybe different religious or denominational background, different political persuasion, different race. It's good to see here, I think, a sincere willingness that can go a long way in, in breaking down barriers. Do people really know that we care? But unfortunately, I think when it comes to these kind of barriers, fear, does it not, often plays a part in many of these interactions? Now, there's a, there's a healthy Godly fear, is there not, for, you know, respecting God, uh, his judgment, his character. And then I think there is an unhealthy fear of, of human interactions and circumstances. And Paul said that God has not given us a spirit of what? He's not given us a spirit of fear. So what that tells us is that that unhealthy fear, that never comes from God. That's never of the Lord. That means he's never behind it. He doesn't condone it. 1 John 4.18 says this, there is no fear in what? In love, in love. It doesn't take, I think, too much thought to realize that with, with fear, there's usually a, a preoccupation with our safety, a, a preoccupation with, with self, whereas with love, we're engaged with others, Right? Fear creates barriers, does it not? Love, it's willing to, to cross boundaries. Uh, fear stays away when conflict arises. Love is diligent to resolve. So certainly by Philip's approach, his eagerness, I think that said something to the eunuch. And so how we treat and approach others sets the table, certainly, for whatever message we're giving, particularly the gospel message. But Philip, we know, was delivered from the legalism of Judaism that perpetrated a distance between, you know, Jerusalem Jews and Gentile Jews or uh, that grew up Gentile and became Jews or Gentiles that didn't convert. 
And the eunuch, I think, was able to see that, that Philip was concerned, he was, uh, that, that, that he cared about him. Uh, my wife is really good at telling me, all right, as she should, uh, about how I approach, whether it's her or the kids or somebody else, you know, the body language, the, the tone, the facial expression, right? I mean, I don't think I'm upset, but I'm screaming I'm upset to everybody around me, and I don't see it, right? How we approach people can either open up those doors of communication or, or shut them down. Certainly we know this, too, that a moral stance, a, a political position, never gives one the right to defame the image of God property that is in every person that's on the earth. Have we not lost this in terms of a Christian community? We think that uh, somebody who maybe has a different political stance or a different stance on a moral issue, we, we immediately can, can look down upon them or we want to argue. Religious movements, I think, can get in a serious ditch when we allow fear to overcome love. Religion can't assuage the yearning of the human heart. I think if if Philip would have came with just more religion to the eunuch, that wouldn't have touched his heart. It's interesting that Amazon says that the most highlighted verse on their digital Bibles, it's not John 3.16. The most highlighted verse is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. This might tell you about what people are feeling, right? Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't think that, it's the, that people don't know that fear is not good for them. I think that people don't know how to operate when they're fearful. We don't know how to stop fearing, what to do when, we, when we're gripped with fear. And maybe, maybe there was some kind of gnawing need within this Ethiopian when Philip came upon him. We don't know. But he hears him reading. And by the way, that was a very common thing to do, to, to read aloud. Even if you were reading to, your, to yourself, just by yourself, people would read aloud. I think we get some insight with these next couple questions that Philip asked. Uh, do you understand what you're reading? And I love his answer. Basically says, and these are some of the wisest words that we can utter, and what is it? I don't know. I really don't know. He, he came back with a question about who this really applied to because he didn't know the answer. But the fact is, a lot of us can't admit that, that we don't know. Many folks can't bring themselves to the point of saying, I don't know, or I need you, because there's, there's humility in those words. But there's an eagerness to learn here. And the, the eunuch follows up with, how can I understand unless someone helps me understand? So he puts himself in the position of a learner with Philip. Now, I don't think that this interaction would have taken place if Philip would have approached, approached him differently. If Philip would have reeked with the typical prejudice that was present in that day for a eunuch, 
and probably foreign Ethiopian as well. Because they were treated as outcasts to Judaism. It would not have happened also if the eunuch was too prideful to admit that he had a need. So he invites Philip into his chariot so that they could interact over the scripture. Now what I find fascinating, where did, where did this guy just come from? He just came from the epicenter of religious activity in Jerusalem. Which tells us he obviously could not get his questions answered there. Now maybe it was the, the religious system provided no format for him to ask. Or maybe it was his color. Maybe it was his eunuch state that never let him get close to anybody. But if you think about it, think about how hard it is within some religious institutions. You don't, you don't have to be a big church to have this. And there are barriers to openness and vulnerability. And particularly with people who are in positions of leadership that like to be questioned. You know, probably the, the worst verse any pastor could ever utter is, don't touch God's anointed. You ever hear that? Used of Old Testament prophets. Like, and I've heard pastors say this, you know, don't, you, how dare you question me? It's like, dude, you're in the wrong business if that's your attitude, seriously. You hear this man, he has to travel along a desert road, and that's where God meets his desire to learn truth. And God orchestrates a divine appointment. It was not in the religious festival. It was not on the steps of the temple. It was on a desert road that God met him. I think there's something sad about that and something wonderful about it. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, Jeremiah says. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, search for it as hidden treasures, then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb, before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Obviously, this passage is from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Now, Jews at that time debated about whether Isaiah was talking about his own suffering or maybe talking about the nation as a whole. But their preconceived notions did not allow them to relate this to a Messiah because they wanted a military Messiah, one who was victorious over the nations that were battling against them. And certainly if the Ethiopian eunuch went to Jerusalem, uh, I think it's not too far-fetched to think that he was influenced by this. And it's obvious their answers 
did not satisfy him. And when those who are given the responsibility to proclaim the truth, when we allow agendas, personal issues to to supersede the plain, clear meaning of Scripture, then I think we're going to be held accountable to that. James says what? Don't let many of you become teachers. Uh, The idea is that because you're going to be held accountable. And listen to what God said about the Old Testament prophets in Ezekiel 13. The word of the Lord came to me. And before I read this, let me just say this. Obviously, there are responsibilities that spiritual leaders have. And just because you have the position doesn't mean you're doing the job, right? This is what he says. Word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You've not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They've seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them. Hmm. They say, thus saith the Lord, or God told me this, when God has not spoken, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. Listen, there are for men and women who teach the Word of God. It is a, a daunting responsibility to, to preach and teach the whole counsel of God, not to just pick and choose easy passages, not to insert our own personal agendas or, or, or modern ideas, but we just let the Word of God speak for itself. Now, certainly as we step back and we, we look at this story again, there's no doubt how Philip viewed Isaiah 53. Verse 45, 45, 35 tells us that Philip drew a straight line from Isaiah 53 to Jesus. The picture of the slaughtered lamb evokes the image of the crucifixion of Christ. The lamb in its shears depicts the silence of Jesus before his accusers. And the lack of justice reminds one of the false accusations leveled at Jesus and the evasion of Pilate. Let us not neglect to recognize that Philip understood Jesus Check this out. And understood he was the Messiah. No New Testament book has been written yet. This is all with the Old Testament. Right? 
The fact is, the Old Testament gets a very bad rap for those who fancy themselves as kind of religious progressives or, or Bible critics. And to me, when, and I've heard, I've heard ministers do this, it's kind of like saying, I don't accept the history of my great-grandparents. What? You don't get to just reject the history of what has happened, right? The incongruence of that seems apparent. I mean, many critics don't mind embracing, you know, the, the, the kind Jesus, but they reject the Old Testament because the God of the Bible does not fit their personal notion of what God should be like. They do not understand God, or they outright reject the God of the Bible in favor of their own self-made deity. They fail to see how a holy God has every right to judge the nations. They fail to see how a, a righteous and sovereign God has every prerogative in deciding the provisions of redemption. There is no New Testament without the background, without the history, without the explanation, without the prophecies of the Old Testament. And really, to discredit the Old Testament, it's really like slapping Jesus in the face. Do you realize how much of the Old Testament Jesus and the New Testament quotes? Here's some books that are quoted by Jesus in the, in the, in the New Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all quoted in the New Testament. Strip the Old Testament from the New, and you have a shell. No innards. You want to understand the Old Testament? Stand in an empty tomb. Go under the shadow of an empty cross. Get within earshot of the teaching of Jesus and the New Testament. And then the Old Testament's going to make sense. Verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now it seems obvious at this point that the Ethiopian believed the gospel. Believed that the grace of God could apply to him as an Ethiopian eunuch. And now he wants to be baptized. And then, uh, many just gloss over this, but is it really just happenstance? Is, is it really just coincidence that they came upon water in the middle of a desert? You ever think of that? And enough water to where it says he went down into the water. I mean, this was, this was a full immersion baptism. And then he asks the question, what prevents me from being baptized? I think there's more to this than can I physically get out of the chair and get baptized. 
I think he's asking, or at least implying, if the, if the grace of God can be experienced by you, Philip, can't I also experience the grace of God and publicly proclaim Christ? Could I be accepted into the family of God as an Ethiopian eunuch, even though I'm, I'm physically scarred, even though I've been the victim of prejudice? Would a, a, a group of people of different color and background truly accept me as a baptized member of the family of God? I mean, whatever was going through his mind, he didn't think there was any hindrance to him being baptized. And neither did Philip. So he says, hey, driver, stop. Now's the time for a full immersion baptism in the desert. And they both went, and it says, they went into the water, and Philip baptized him. A committed Jew baptizing an Ethiopian eunuch as a new believer. That was a declaration that the gospel dispels racial, national, and religious divisions. Let's not forget that if you look through the history of public declarations of faith, like baptism, that's what it is. It's a public declaration that you've already made this commitment to Christ. But that can be a cause for persecution. It was an ax, and it's been through time. I mean, to follow Christ came at a cost. Because to be baptized is a way of saying, this is where I stand. This is now my identity. I'm, I'm a child of God. I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ. So I understand why some people don't get baptized. I'm not saying it's right. But when you look at it in this light, it, it, it's a public stand. Asian Access, which is a, a Christian mission agency in South Asia, reports that in some of the countries that they're ministering in where uh, you have a particular Hindu influence and a lot of persecution for Christians, before you can get baptized in those churches, they ask the prospects seven questions. Listen to this. Seven questions before you can get baptized. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? And lastly, are you willing to die for Jesus? That's quite a questionnaire before you get baptized. But they understand what it costs to make that public stand. And they came out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. There's the first biblical reference to Star Trek assimilation right there from one to another place. So the Spirit of God led Philip to this encounter, and then the Spirit of God transported him somehow to the next. And the eunuch continued southward on his long journey home. I would have loved to have been in that chariot after he met with Philip. Don't you think that trip was a lot shorter after that? Filled with joy, it says. I mean, the experience. You remember what it was like when you first understood you were forgiven? 
the grace of God just washed over you? All that you've done, all the shame, all the stuff that you feared, you just put it at his feet. And now you felt accepted and loved unconditionally. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Miraculously transported about 30 miles to what was the old Ashdod. And he continues his witness on Gentile soil, it says, until he came to Caesarea. If you were to fast forward to Acts 21, which by the way, is a span of about 20 years from Acts 8 to Acts 21, guess who's still in Caesarea preaching? Ministering. At the essence, I think, of this story, it's kind of the conflict between religion. It perpetrates a a distance. It often perpetrates shame and and fear. And I'm not just talking about those that are non-Christian religions. I'm talking about evangelical churches can often perpetrate this. And many of you know what I'm talking about. And then you, you can contrast that with a gospel of, of love and confidence and acceptance before God. And God did it by creating a divine appointment in a desert. Human contact, human love. 